Okay, tonight I'm going to be talking to you about the Catholic Church's teaching on the communion of saints. What is the communion of saints? Does the Bible allow us to pray to Mary and the other saints? What about Jesus' role as the sole mediator between God and man? Next week's talk is entitled, One Church. And looking around at Christianity, we see the Catholic Church. We see the Orthodox Churches. We see some 25 to 30,000 Protestant denominations. Is this the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17? And the week after that, I'll be covering apostolic authority and the Pope. With what authority do the Pope and the bishops speak? Is the Pope really infallible? And the final talk will be on once saved, always saved. Many Christians believe that once you are saved, once you profess Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that you are absolutely guaranteed to go to heaven, no matter what happens after your profession of faith. Is that biblical? We'll be looking into that. Now, let's talk about the communion of saints. Every Catholic is familiar with the phrase, the communion of saints, because when we recite the creed every Sunday, we say, I believe in the communion of saints. Many non-Catholic Christians are also familiar with that phrase because they recite either the Nicene Creed or more likely the Apostles' Creed in their faith tradition. Lutherans say it, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Methodists, and others. At many Baptist churches, they recite the Apostles' Creed. So Catholics and many non-Catholic Christians believe in the communion of saints. But exactly what is the communion of saints? Probably most people, including Catholics, who recite these creeds never give a second thought to the phrase, the communion of saints. And most Catholics probably do not realize that the church's doctrine on the communion of saints plays an important role in almost every aspect of their faith. Almost every single one. It plays an important role in the mass, in the theology of the sacraments in the church's teaching on salvation, on prayer, on purgatory, on Mary, and more. And since the doctrine of the communion of saints is so little understood by Catholics, to whose faith it is so important, it is no wonder that this doctrine is even less understood outside of the Catholic faith. And so it should come as no surprise that many non-Catholic Christians have absolutely no understanding of the Catholic teaching regarding the communion of saints. And, as a result of this lack of understanding, they raise any number of arguments against Catholic teaching and practice regarding this doctrine. So I want to first give you the basic teaching of the Catholic Church about the communion of saints from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the Catechism, it's simply a compendium or a compilation of the teachings of the Church put together in one book, in book form. After giving you what the Catechism teaches, or a little bit of it, I then want to answer some of the common objections that non-Catholics have regarding what Catholics believe about this doctrine. In the Catechism, paragraphs number 946 through 962 speak directly on the communion of saints. 946 of the Catechism states the following. After confessing the Holy Catholic Church, the Apostles' Creed adds the communion of saints. In a certain sense, this article is a further explanation of the preceding. 
What is the church if not the assembly of all the saints? The communion of saints is the church. End of quote. So we see that number one, the doctrine of the communion of saints is an extension of the doctrine regarding the church itself. And number two, everyone who belongs to the church belongs to this communion of saints. Why is this? Because as we shall see, the church is the body of Christ. And it is as members of the one and same body that we have this communion or this relationship with one another as Christians. Paragraph 947 of the Catechism. Since all the faithful form one body, the good of each is communicated to the others. But the most important member is Christ, since he is the head. Therefore, the riches of Christ are communicated to all the members through the sacraments. In other words, what the Catechism is saying is that the riches of grace and glory merited by Jesus Christ are shared in by the members of his body, which is the church, through the work of the Holy Spirit, primarily in the sacraments. And that every good thing, every grace, every ounce of glory that Jesus Christ shares with one member of his body is in a mysterious way, but a very real way, shared in by every member of his body. We are all members of the same body. If something is good for the right hand, that good is also shared in by the left hand, by the knees, by the feet, by the eyes and by every other part of the body. Whatever benefits one part of the body, in essence, benefits all parts of the body. So it is with the graces and the glory given by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to any member of his body. One more from the Catechism. Number 953 gives a good scriptural summary of the communion of saints. None of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. That's from Romans 14, verse 7. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's from 1 Corinthians 12, 26 to 27. Number 953 goes on to say that in this solidarity with all men, living or dead, which is founded on the communion of saints, the least of our acts done in charity redounds to the profit of all. Every sin harms this communion. In other words, the communion of saints is all about how each one of us, as Christians, as members of the body of Christ, is connected to each other. I believe it was John Donne who said, no man is an island. Well, whether he knew it or not, he was talking about the communion of saints. That's why, for instance, there is no such thing as a private sin. Any sin you commit as a member of the body of Christ, no matter how small, no matter how private, affects each and every member of the body. Second Corinthians 2.5 states, But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, 
but in some measure to you all. And each and every good thing that you do, no matter how small and no matter how private, affects each and every member of the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now, there are a few principles regarding the communion of saints that I want to emphasize here before moving on to some of the objections raised about the church's teaching. These principles underlie and pervade the church's teachings on the communion of saints. And it is very important to keep them in mind when we're reading the catechism about this doctrine or when we're defending this doctrine against those who attack it. Principle number one, every Christian is a member of the body of Christ. You won't get much argument from this on just about any, from any Christian denomination that I know of. Romans 12 verses four and five. For as in one body we have many members and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Members of the one body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Members of the one body body of Christ. And as Catholics, we believe that it is through baptism, as we just read in Scripture, that we become members of the body of Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Colossians 2.12 says the following, and you were buried with him in baptism. Romans 6.4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death. Galatians 3:27 For as many of you for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism makes us members of the body of Christ. Principle number 2. Physical death does not separate us from the body of Christ. Romans 8 verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if we are members of the body of Christ, when we end our earthly existence, we are still members of the body of Christ in heaven. Principle number three, there is only one body of Christ. There is not one body of Christ in heaven and one body of Christ on earth. There is one body of Christ in heaven and on earth. Jesus has one body, not two or more. Ephesians 2, verses 15 to 16 says the following. 
by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, the two being Gentiles and Jews, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. So principle number three. One and only one body of Christ in heaven and on earth. One more principle. Number four. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. That's why in Catholic terminology we have the church triumphant, which is the members of the body of Christ in heaven. The church suffering, the members of the body of Christ in purgatory. And number th the third part of the church, the church militant, the members of the body of Christ still on earth. Ephesians 1, verse 22 to 23. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church which is his body. Colossians 1:18. He is the head of the body, the church. And Colossians 1:24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. The church is the body of Christ. And did you catch what Paul said in Colossians 1.24? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul shows us that we can suffer for one another. That our sufferings can benefit one another. This is an integral part of the church's teaching on the communion of saints. Particularly regarding indulgences. We all know our prayers can benefit one another. Did we know that our sufferings can benefit one another. However, the part of the body of Christ which is in heaven, the saints in heaven, cannot suffer for us. There is no suffering in heaven. But they can pray for us. And since we are all members of the same body, since we are all connected in this mysterious way through Jesus Christ, whether we are in heaven or on earth, those of us on earth can ask those members of the body of Christ who are in heaven to pray for us. Just as we ask those members of the body who are here on earth to pray for us. But this is where the problem starts. Most non-Catholic Christians have a problem with us Catholics when we start talking about asking the saints in heaven to intercede for us here on earth. Any number of objections arise here. But the first one that I generally hear is that you can't pray to someone who is dead. It goes against Scripture. And they point to chapter 18 of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. In chapter 18, verses 10 through 12, it reads as follows. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering... Anyone who practices divination, a soothsayer, or an augur, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a wizard, or a necromancer. The New King James Version states it as follows, which is a language we might be, in this case, a little more familiar with. 
There shall not be found among you one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. One who calls up the dead. Remember that phrase. Because that is what Catholics are accused of when we pray to the saints in heaven. We are accused of calling up the dead. And they say, well, Scripture says you can't do that. But this is a misunderstanding of both Catholic practice and teaching. And it is a misunderstanding of this passage in Deuteronomy. If you look at the context of the passage, the whole passage is talking about the occult. One who burns his son or daughter as an offering. You don't do that before you offer up prayers to the saints. One who practices witchcraft. One who interprets omens or a sorcerer. This passage is talking about people who generally make appeals to satanic forces in the hopes of gaining wealth and power or some other worldly advantage. Or want to put a curse or something on their enemies. That is what the occult is all about. As Catholics, when we pray to the saints, we most certainly are not calling up the dead. We are not trying to get the saints to appear to us. We are not trying to conjure up their spirits in the same manner as witches and sorcerers and mediums. And we certainly do not go to mediums or sorcerers or spiritists or necromancers and make use of their services. Praying to the saints has nothing to do with any of that. So, this passage is talking about the occult. Nowhere in this passage does it say you cannot pray to the saints in heaven. Nowhere in this passage does it say that we cannot ask the saints in heaven, the members of the body of Christ in heaven, to intercede for us before the throne of our Lord. But, someone may still say that praying to the saints is indeed calling up the dead. Is it? Let me ask a question here. When we're talking on a spiritual plane, and if you'll forgive the use of the oxymoron, where do the souls of the dead live? And let me rephrase that. What is the abode of the dead? Is it heaven? I don't think so. Have you not read what was said to you by God? This is Jesus talking in Matthew 22, verses 31 and 32. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. The saints, the good guys, are alive. Yes, they have physically died. But what is the true meaning of death? The temporary death of the body here on earth? Or the eternal death of the soul separated from God? Those who die in fellowship with our Lord are actually more alive at this moment than we are here on earth. So when it talks about calling up the dead, who is it really talking about? God is the God of the living, Jesus tells us. And besides, if this passage in Deuteronomy 18 is referring to the saints in heaven, then would not God have broken his own commandment at the transfiguration? 
In Matthew 17, starting with verse 1, we read about the transfiguration of Christ. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Did Jesus break his own commandment by calling up the dead? And notice, this isn't just a case of merely asking the saints for intercession. This is actually having them appear right there in front of you and talk to you face to face. And what does Scripture say? They didn't just appear to Jesus, they appeared to them, Peter, James, and John as well. So did Jesus break his own commandment by calling up the dead? No, because again, God is the God of the living. Moses and Elijah are alive. So we can see that if Deuteronomy 18 meant that we should not have any communication whatsoever with the saints in heaven, then Jesus was setting a pretty bad example for us here. But we know that that's not the case. And in light of these other passages I just mentioned, we can be sure that this passage in Deuteronomy 18 is talking about the occult and has absolutely nothing to do with the Catholic practice of praying to the saints in heaven. And let me stop right here for a moment and discuss some terminology. When I use the phrase praying to the saints, or when any Catholic says praying to the saints or to Mary, we're not talking about worshiping the saints or worshiping Mary. We're talking about asking them to intercede for us. If I were to ask any of you sitting in this audience tonight to pray for me, I don't think any of you would say, oh, don't ask me to pray for you, I'm not God. That is exactly how Catholics use the word when we say that we pray to Mary, or when we say that we pray to the saints, or when we ask them to intercede for us. We do not worship the saints. We do not attribute to them anything that should be attributable to God and God alone. Now, back to some more objections to Catholic doctrine regarding the communion of saints. As I just said, some argue against it using Deuteronomy 18, which I showed to be a, a misinterpretation of Scripture and a misunderstanding of Catholic teaching. But I've also had some people argue against it from what seems to be a common sense point of view. You can't pray to the saints, they say, because they can't see you or hear you. The reasoning is that since we can't see them, and since we can't hear them, how could they possibly see or hear us? They're in heaven. We're on earth. That argument comes from our very finite minds. What someone is saying with this argument is that the folks in heaven have the same limitations that we here on earth have. We can't see them, so naturally they can't see us. We can't hear them, so naturally they can't hear us. Does that really make sense when you stop to think about it? 1 Corinthians 13:12 states the following, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall understand fully. Now, on earth, we see dimly, 
But in heaven, we will be face to face with God Almighty. Do you still think the saints in heaven have the same limitations that we have here on earth? And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Paul's talking about Adam here, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We shall bear the image of Jesus Christ in heaven. In what manner? I don't know. To what degree? I have no idea. But it's very clear that we will be something much more in heaven than we are here on earth. Let's look at some more scripture. Second Peter 1 verse 4. And this, this one absolutely blows my mind. It's incredible. Second Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 4. Quote, by which he, God, has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That is mind-boggling. We cannot comprehend it. You don't think that as partakers of the divine nature, we won't be able to see and hear what is happening here on earth. But we always have to realize that as this passage makes clear, whatever abilities we have in heaven, whatever gifts, whatever grace, it all comes from Jesus Christ. It is all the result of being partakers of his nature, his divine nature. It is not anything we do on our own. It is not anything the saints in heaven do on their own. When we are in heaven, just as on earth, everything we are, everything we are able to do and to be is the result of God's grace, period. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. Scripture tells us that the things of heaven are beyond anything we can even imagine. Why would anyone, anyone think we have the same limitations in heaven that we have here on earth? And then verse 10 of that same passage says this. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. If God has revealed to us through the Spirit things about heaven, then why can't God reveal to those in heaven through the Spirit things about the earth well obviously he can and obviously he does let's look at some examples from scripture in the book of revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 it says when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for the witness they had borne they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign lord holy and true how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? These saints in heaven, these martyrs, are crying out to Jesus to avenge their blood on those who dwell on earth. Obviously, they know that that hasn't happened yet. So these saints in heaven have at least some knowledge of events on earth. And way back in 1 Samuel chapter 28, there's a rather strange occurrence. The Philistines have gathered for an attack on Israel. King Saul had displeased God, and as Saul says in verse 15, God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. 
neither by prophets nor by dreams. So King Saul goes to a medium to get in touch with the recently deceased prophet Samuel. And what does Samuel tell Saul? In verse 19, Samuel says, Moreover, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Samuel prophesies from the beyond. He not only knew what was presently happening in Israel, but he knew of future events as well. Looks like the folks in heaven know quite a bit about what's happening here on earth. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. You're probably all familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and he goes to a place of torment. Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which was a place of comfort. The rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to earth to warn the rich man's brothers, quote, lest they also come into this place of torment. Well, let's look closely at this passage and see what it's telling us. It seems that this man in a place of torment knows that his brothers are still alive on earth. And it seems to imply very strongly that he knows that they haven't yet repented. Because he says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will repent, a future action. And if he can know these things while being in a place of torment, why can't the saints in heaven know these things? Well, obviously they do from Abraham's response. Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham seems to have some inside knowledge on this guy's brothers. Even knowledge about the disposition of their hearts. Can those in heaven know the disposition of a person's heart? Can they know what's in a person's mind? Well, we know from the example with Samuel that they can know the future. But let's look at Luke 15, verse 7, which says this. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And a couple of verses down in verse 10, it says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the angels in heaven rejoice over a repentant sinner. What is repentance? Is it not a change in your interior disposition? Is it not a change of mind? A change of heart? True repentance doesn't come from saying you're sorry. It comes from actually being sorry. And that is an interior process. It is a state of mind. A disposition of the heart. So we see here that the angels in heaven, to some extent, even know the hearts and minds of those on earth. How else could they rejoice over the repentance of a sinner? And if the angels can know, why not the saints in heaven? I get this picture in my mind of thousands upon thousands of angels walking down the streets of heaven. And also thousands upon thousands of saints walking down the same streets of heaven. All of a sudden, a sinner on earth repents and the angels go into this frenzy of joy and celebration. 
Can you picture the saints sitting there going, hey, what's going on? Why are you guys so happy? What's all the laughing for? Why are you singing? I don't think so. And can you picture a saint going up to an angel going, please, please tell me what's going on. Angel going, nope, sorry, can't tell you. You're a saint. I don't think that's happening. And scripture tells us that it just ain't that way. Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus tells us that the saints in heaven are like angels. They are like angels in heaven. So if the angels know about a repentant sinner, then wouldn't the saints also know about a repentant sinner? Since they are like angels in heaven. And again, whether it is an angel or a saint, it is not by their own power, but by the power of God. And one more passage, Hebrews 12, verse 1. The writer of Hebrews has just finished talking about many of the Old Testament saints in, in chapter 11. It's, it's Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, and others. And the first verse of chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in some mystical way, they are all around us, whether we can see them or not. And if they're all around us, if they surround us, as Scripture says, you think they might know a little bit about what we're doing here? People are always thinking that Catholics attribute godlike powers to Mary and the saints. We don't. Whatever they are able to do is because they are given the power to do it by Jesus Christ. Because they are members of the body of Christ. Members of the body of Christ with Jesus as the head. Remember that. And I want to make a little analogy here using our earthly bodies to hopefully help you understand the communion of saints a little bit better. To understand prayer to the saints a little bit better. Let's say that I'm holding a needle in my left hand. And I poke my right hand with that needle. What happens? Well, when I poke my right hand, I feel pain and my right hand jerks away. But how did that impulse of pain get to my right hand? Was it the direct result of the needle? Mm -mm. It was indirectly due to the needle. When the needle penetrated the skin on the right hand, an impulse went up to my brain and my brain decided that this was painful and sent an impulse back down to, right, to my right hand to move and to allow it to feel the pain. So the reason the right hand felt pain was as a direct result from an impulse from the brain and only indirectly from the needle. Now let's say that we on earth are represented by the left hand and those in heaven by the right hand. And our prayers are that needle. When we want the saints to hear our prayers or to feel the impulse from our prayers, when we want them to feel the jab of the needle, so to speak, what actually happens? Well, first, the impulse of prayer has to go to the brain. Where is the brain located? In the head. Who is the head of the body of Christ? Jesus Christ. So for our prayers to be heard by the saints, 
They have to first go through the head, through Jesus Christ, and then to the saints, and then back to Jesus. So while it is true that we do pray through Mary and the saints to Jesus, the first step in that process is actually that we pray through Jesus to the saints. So the whole process actually is actually from us to Jesus, from Jesus to the saints, from the saints back to Jesus. It is never, never just us and Mary or just us and the saints. Jesus is involved at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. The parts of the body can do nothing on their own. It is only through the head that they can function. So never, never let anyone tell you that praying to the saints means that you are leaving Jesus out. Or that praying to the saint, you are praying to the saints instead of Jesus. We cannot pray to the saints without Jesus. He is the head. We are the body. Everything is through him, with him, and in him. Now let's summarize these last few points before moving on. Number one, the saints in heaven are alive. Number two, the saints in heaven, as do the angels, have some knowledge of events, present and future, of things here on earth. And to a certain extent, they even have knowledge of a person's interior disposition, what's in his or her mind or heart. Not complete knowledge, mind you. I never said complete knowledge. Only God has that. But they have some knowledge nonetheless. So it is not opposed to Scripture to say that they can hear us when we talk to them, even if it's just mental prayer, when we ask them for, our, for their prayers, for their intercession. It is not against Scripture to say that they can hear us. And number three, this knowledge that the saints and angels have is through, with, and in Jesus Christ. It is not of their own power. It is by the power of God. Now, another objection which many of you may have heard. Why waste your time praying to the saints when you can go straight to Jesus? My answer to that is, why waste your time asking me to pray for you when you could go straight to Jesus? Once you have established the fact that the saints in heaven are alive, that they are still members of the body of Christ, and they, they can, that they can, through Jesus, hear your request for prayer and intercession, then any argument against praying to them is also an argument against asking people here on earth to pray for you. And you need to frame your response, keeping that in mind. And as I just explained, you cannot pray to the saints without going through Jesus. Now, if it is a good thing to ask those on earth to pray for us, which the Bible clearly tells us it is, and which I don't think anyone who calls themselves a Christian will dispute, then it is also a good thing to ask those in heaven to pray for us. As a matter of fact, it is a better thing than asking those on earth to pray for us. Why? James chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. So we see that some people's prayers have more effect than others. 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, 
and his ears are open to their prayer. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects, and God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. And who, pray tell, is more righteous than those in heaven? Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Talk about being righteous. The spirits of just men made perfect. I want those guys praying for me. And in the book of Job, chapter 42, verse 7 through 10, it says, we see that God is upset with Job's friends and pretty much tells them that he won't accept their prayers. He says to them, and let my servant Job pray for you, for his prayer I will accept. And it goes on to say, and the Lord accepted the intercession of Job. Again, some people's prayer is more powerful than others. And what about Moses and the Israelites in their battle against the Amalekites in Exodus 17? As long as Moses was interceding for Israel with his hands lifted up, the battle went Israel's way. But when Moses' arms came down, the battle went Amalek's way. Well, don't you think all those Israelites were praying when they went into battle? Yet it was Moses' prayers that counted the most. Why? Because James tells us in 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power, and Moses was a righteous man. So again, some people's prayers are more powerful than others. The Bible tells us so. And let me go back to James 5.16 for a second. James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man has great power or avails much, as it says in the New King James Version. But what is one of the argument that Protestants use against the Catholic teaching that Mary was sinless her entire life? One of the things they say is they point to Romans 3.10, which says, None is righteous, no, not one. They say, see, Mary had to have sinned because Scripture says that none is righteous, no, not one. And it goes on to say that all have sinned. Well, if I'm a Protestant and I use that argument about Mary, what conclusion does that lead me to about James 5.16? Think about it for a second. James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. But the argument of many Protestants against Mary's sinlessness is that there are no righteous men here on earth. So if I'm Protestant and I believe that no one here on earth is righteous, then I have to believe that James is telling me that the saints in heaven are interceding for me. Otherwise, who the heck is James talking about? If the folks on earth aren't righteous, it's got to be the folks in heaven. So you can't believe that there are no righteous men on earth and also not believe in the intercession of the saints in heaven. If you do, you've got one big contradiction in your theology. And since these men and women in heaven are righteous, why would anyone think that they wouldn't be praying for us? Remember what Hebrews said, the souls of just men made perfect. If we on earth, with all our imperfections, if we are willing to pray for others, if we love enough to pray for others, how much more the saints in heaven whose love has been made perfect. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Love never ends. Those in heaven are united to God in a way which we cannot even begin to fathom. God is love. Don't you think that the souls of the just in heaven love way beyond anything that we are capable of here on earth? And if we love our fellow men, particularly our fellow members of the body of Christ, don't you think those in heaven do the same, but even more so? And if out of love for our fellow man, we are willing to pray for others, don't you think those in heaven are willing to do so, but even more so? Now I want to cover one last objection before I finish, and this is usually the biggest objection. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. The first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5, reads as follows. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You see, we Catholics are told, there is only one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. Therefore, praying to the saints goes against the Bible because you are making them mediators between God and man. You are diminishing Jesus' role as the sole mediator. Well, besides the fact that I've already shown that prayer to the saints relies completely on Jesus' role as mediator between God and man, as head of the body, how else can we respond to this argument? In the Bible, we've already seen from Exodus, Moses interceding on the behalf of the Israelites. That's mediating between God and man. In Genesis, Abraham interceded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's mediating between God and man. We know that it is okay to ask others here on earth to pray and intercede for us. That's mediating between God and man. So I think once again we have a situation where a passage of the Bible is being misinterpreted and misunderstood. As Catholics, we agree that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can find that stated quite clearly in the Catechism. Only Jesus Christ is true God and true man. Not Mary, not any of the saints. We are saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not by Mary's blood, not by the blood of the saints. Jesus Christ is the sole mediator between God and man. However, as members of the body of Christ, he allows us to share in his mediation. How else do we have the examples of intercession in the situations we've discussed with Moses and Abraham and Job and with our fellow Christians praying for us? 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our only foundation, the Bible tells us. Yet Ephesians 2, verses 19, 20 tells us, and this is the same Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Wait a minute. Wait just one minute. 
In 1 Corinthians, Christ is our foundation, our only foundation. But in Ephesians, the apostles and prophets are the foundation, with Jesus as the cornerstone. And in Revelation 21, 14, it says this, And the wall of the city, and they're talking about the heavenly Jerusalem here, or heaven, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. From one foundation, Jesus, to one foundation, the apostles and prophets, to twelve foundations, the apostles. All of it from Scripture. Is Scripture contradicting itself? No. Jesus is the one and only foundation. But the apostles and prophets, as members of the body of which Jesus is the head, share in Jesus' role as foundation for the church. For the heavenly Jerusalem. In Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one Lord. But Revelation 19, verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lord, uh -uh. Lord of Lords, implies more than one Lord. But Jesus is the Lord of lords, and any other lords are simply sharing in his lordship. In 1 Peter 3, 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Wait a minute, she's not supposed to do that, is she? Isn't Jesus the only Lord? James 4, 12, there is one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. And in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So Christ is the one judge, and he is the one who will be judging the living and the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The saints will judge the world. Luke 22, verses 28 and 29. You are those who have continued with me in my trials. Jesus is talking to his apostles here. As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, does scripture contradict itself? No, there is only one judge, Jesus Christ, but these others are allowed to share in his judgeship and so can rightly be called judges but only because they are members of his body. You need to get that body and head thing down if you want to understand not just the communion of saints, but a whole lot of the Bible as well. Head and body together, not separate. Matthew 23, 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Catholics get this one thrown in their face all the time. Well, you're calling your priest father, but it says, call no man father on earth. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, Stephen, about to become the first Christian martyr, addresses the Jewish priests and authorities in this manner. Brethren and fathers, hear me. Was he disobeying Jesus? Acts 22, verse 1, Paul, addressing the Jews at the temple in Jerusalem, said this, brethren and fathers. Fathers, hear the defense which I now make before you. 
Was Paul disobeying Jesus? And listen again to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Whoa. Paul is their father. What about call no man father because you have only one father who is in heaven? Was Paul disobeying Jesus? No, 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 a thousand times no. Paul is a father because he is sharing in the fatherhood of God. Only because of God's one true fatherhood can I call myself a father of my son and my little girl on the way. And one last example. We have only one teacher, Jesus Christ. Yet, we have many teachers. Matthew 23.10, and this is the New King James Version. It's, it uses the word teachers. I think in many of the Catholic version it will say master. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Yet in Acts 13.1 it says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and... Uh-oh. Teachers. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Again, we see Scripture at one point telling us we have only one teacher, Jesus Christ, and not to call anyone else teacher, but then we see Scripture calling other people teachers. Contradiction in Scripture? No. So let me sum this up. Scripture tells us that we have only one foundation, Jesus Christ. But Scripture tells us that there is more than one foundation. Scripture tells us that we have only one Lord, Jesus Christ. But Scripture tells us there is more than one Lord. Scripture tells us that we have only one judge, Jesus Christ. But Scripture tells us there is more than one judge. Scripture tells us that we have only one Father, God the Father in heaven. But Scripture tells us there is more than one Father. Scripture tells us that we have only one teacher, Jesus Christ. But Scripture tells us there is more than one teacher. Contradictions in Scripture, not at all. Not when these passages are all properly understood in context. Jesus is the only foundation. Jesus is the only Lord. Jesus is the only judge. God the Father is the only Father. And Jesus is the only teacher. Jesus is the head. We are members of the body. Therefore, we are able, according to the graces he gives us, to share in his role as foundation, as Lord, as judge, as teacher, as father. In God's fatherhood, since Jesus is fully God, we can share in God the Father's fatherhood through him. And back to 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Does that mean that we can't pray for one another? Does that mean that the saints in heaven can't pray for us? I think we've shown that that's not what it means. Do we in any way diminish Jesus' role as mediator by praying for one another or by having the saints in heaven pray for us? No. We and the saints in heaven share in Jesus' role as the one mediator between God and man. Just as we and the apostles and prophets share in the roles of Father, Teacher, Judge, and Lord. And in case you have any doubt, let me close with these two scripture passages. 
regarding the role of angels and saints as mediators. Matthew 18.10 See that you do not despise any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus' implication here is very apparent. Don't mess with these kids because they're guardian angels who always behold the face of the Father will tell on you. And it won't be a good thing for you. In other words, the angels are acting as mediators, as intercessors between God and man. They're sharing in Jesus' role. And in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, 8, it says, And we, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints being the members of the church here on earth in this context. And again, Revelation 8, verse 3 and 4 and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. So who is holding the bowls filled with the prayers of the saints? And who is presenting them before the throne of the Lord? The angels and the saints in heaven. Praying to the angels, praying to the saints is not contrary to the Bible. It does not take away from the role of Jesus as mediator between God and man. It is not calling up the dead. The saints in heaven are alive. They love us more and pray for us than anyone here on earth could ever do. They are members of the same body, members of the same flesh that we are members of. And there's a whole lot more I could go into from the Bible about the communion of saints, about the honor we need to pay to Mary and the other saints in heaven, how we need to follow their examples of their holy lives, and much more. But I don't have the time. But just remember, first and foremost, when thinking about the communion of saints, think about one body. One very real body with Jesus Christ as the head of the body. And think about if the body can do anything without the head. The communion of saints. The body of Christ. Thank you. For more information or to obtain a copy of this talk, please check out the Bible Christian Society website at www.biblechristiansociety.com or send a letter to the Bible Christian Society, P.O. Box 424, Pleasant Grove, Alabama, 35127. Thank you, and may God bless you.